Hi, this is Damien O'Darty with the Lobby Pod on Center Maryland. We are really fortunate to have someone whose name is uh, prevalent throughout uh, local, state, and national uh, political and governmental discourse throughout the DMV. His name is Len Lucci. He's been named by Baltimore Magazine as a super lawyer throughout Maryland. He represented uh, Prince George's County as their lobbyist, current, uh, represented them as their county attorney, represented the school board. Uh, so I, I know sometimes uh, uh, people have experience all throughout the state and the country. Uh, Led certainly has that, but Len Lucci, your experience in Prince George's County, like mine in Baltimore County, seems to be sort of a defining piece of your professional career. So welcome. We'd love to talk to you about how you got to be one of Maryland's most prominent voices in public affairs. And uh, just can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Damon. It's great to be here. Len, talk to me about your practice today. Uh, you know, when you get caught, uh, we, hopefully we can get caught in the elevators again at the Capitol and, and, and uh, everybody in the state Senate and House of Delegates, of course, knows you. But if you were to bump into a, a corporate lobbyist or a nonprofit lobbyist, how, how would you talk about the work you do today? I mean, it's definitely evolved. And now that I'm um, I have a number of years behind me, I'm able to do much more of, of choosing uh, work that I want to work on. And so I'm doing much more working with um, uh, coalitions to get tough measures uh, passed uh, with environmentalists, uh, with um, labor groups, um, with civil rights groups, um, all sorts of types of, of coalitions I worked on. And I, I really enjoy doing that. You see the challenge, you figure out how are you going to get past the hurdles, and then you develop strategies and alternate strategies to to get it done and you don't always get it done right away but but more often than not you, you work the say the right formula and you can get it done yes yeah, so it's a little different than coming in with some uh sort of corporate initiative per se and, and and have a have a sizable budget to try to effectuate some messaging that supports their you know their corporate mandate you know, to me, it sounds like what you're doing is in, in the old in the old in the old days we call it white hat lobbying, right? We say uh, we say that it's sort of uh, community generated, small business generated uh, ideas and concerns about how to move the community forward, and then pulling together a coalition to try to make that reform possible. Am I getting anywhere close? Or uh... yeah, that's I mean that's what my works evolved to. I used to do much more corporate lobbying and trade groups and um, now I'm doing much more of this and uh, I find it satisfying working on the minimum wage campaign and uh, gun violence prevention campaigns and uh, climate uh, uh, campaigns so it's, it's all um, it makes it fun and it, and it makes it satisfying. So there's hope for me yet eh? There's hope for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about uh, coming up politically. I think when I was uh, starting out in the state legislature around 1997, I think you, were, were you working with uh, Prince George's County at, at that time as their lead lobbyist? Yeah, I was. I was the county lobbyist for um, 11 years, um, eight years with Wayne Curry and three years with Jack Johnson, who were 
two very different people to work for. Um, and um, I, I just, when I started working for Wayne, I thought I knew everything and I learned so much from him. He was a, a brilliant guy who um, one more, could one moment be comfortable uh, talking at a barbershop in Fairmont Heights and next moment wax eloquent in a corporate boardroom. He was just an amazing strategic thinker who was you know, really good at playing three-dimensional chess. That's amazing that you bring that up because he, I remember he and Doug Duncan and Martin O'Malley were sort of this triumvirate of local government, uh, you know, in the late 1990s, early aughts, and uh, had to admire Prince George's County Executive Wayne Curry because he was always at the center of everything. Um, and I got to meet him later in my career uh, over the Question 7 campaign and learned so much from him. My, my podcast pal, Don Moeller, the former Baltimore County Executive, somehow those two, both county executives uh, who got to, got to that gig in different ways, were roommates at Western Maryland College. Uh, oh, I had no idea. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I caught him at sort of the tail end, I guess, of the career. Uh, but you were there with them in the room where it happened when, you know, Prince George's County – you all were responsible for Prince George's County being, I would say, an overlooked, undervalued jurisdiction in the statewide conversation to becoming the central point of conversation. And then with Curry and, and Rashern Baker, seems like they have made this local jurisdiction the envy of the entire state. And I just... I'd love to hear your impressions as somebody who was on in the room when it happened, when I bet you nobody thought it would ever happen. I'd just love to hear your, your point of view on that. It was tough because back then the purse strings of the state were held very tightly by uh, the late Pete Rawlings and the late Barbara Hoffman who worked together uh, to protect Baltimore's interests. And so when we, we're working on things like the Redskins stadium where Wayne refused to put a, a penny of local money into it. And it was the only stadium built in the country without a penny of local money. And that had caused some dissonance or when it was asking for the state to put in a you know, billion dollars, which was a lot back then. It still is a lot um, to rebuild the Wilson bridge so that we could have national Harbor. Um, or when we say we'd want a brand new hospital and we want university of Maryland to, to run it. I mean, all these things were like really intractable boulders to pull up, push up the hill. Um, or when we got the state to put into law uh, building 26 new schools to settle the school desegregation suit that had been over Prince George's County, hanging over um, like a cloud for 28 years. So, I mean, all these things, you know, Wayne was an audacious guy and people said you can't do that. Um, but in the end, both Pete Rawlings and Barbara Hoffman realized that Prince George's County had needs just like uh, Baltimore City and that uh, Wayne was a good um, steward of the public funds. And he was, uh, I mean, he was just as chintzy with public funds as he was uh, with his own funds. He was a, a real, you know, tight with the Eagle. But um, and then when they realized that and they had confidence and they they cooperated and they and both of them made trips down to um Prince George's County to see what Wayne's different visions were. Um, the most scary time was um, we had the Senate 
Budget and Taxation Committee on this boat. You left Old Town Alexandria to go over this big mud puddle before it became National Harbor to kind of and give them the vision of what it could look like. And we had Wayne and um, Milt Peterson, who just passed away, the developer of National Harbor, talk about their vision for what it could be. And the uh, pilot of the boat came over to me and um, whispered to me, says, we're stuck in the mud. I have them keep talking. Uh, and so they did. And I was thinking, oh, my God, we're going to lose the whole thing. We're going to be marooned in this boat. The, all the senators and the budget committee are going to give thumbs down to this project. And then we heard this big gurgling. And the boat took off and um, no one noticed it because we had a open bar. So um, it worked out fine. <laughs> you know, I tell you, uh, your point of view, just like it humbles me so much because, I, you know, I run around all over the country telling people I, I got the National Harbor thing done and we had the award winning ad, you know, and then and, and, and you're there like 20 years later, uh, 20 years before when, you know, they can't even uh, navigate the land. So uh, on behalf of all us braggarts out there, we tip our hat to you. (laughs) We tip our hat to you. One of the other things I really dig about you that uh, I'm learning, like uh, Josh Kurtz, the the head of Maryland Matters, says you're the zealot of Maryland politics. You're everywhere at all times. You know, there's not an issue you can't find where there's not a Len Lucci to be a part of it. You know, like how do you get to that point in your life where you're just sort of you become the fabric of your profession. Is it just like, is it working on the right projects? Is it working with the right people? Any tips for our, uh, for uh, uh, listeners that are, that are just getting into the, the practice of lobbying and public affairs? Any thoughts you have on that? Well, I mean, part is just a function of being old, I guess. No, I don't, I don't feel old. But um, I, mean, I can't tell you that like, <laughs> A lot of the friendships and relationships I had with people were before they were elected to office. And we had those friendships then. I mean, I knew, you know, five of the six House chairmen and three of the four Senate chairmen before they were in their current office. And so that helps to have that background with them. Um, to were you, kind, were you kind of like a Mike Sanderson guy that like knew the budgets and the laws backward and forward? Were you more like relationship guy? Were you kind of all of the above? How would you talk about? Yeah, your- I mean, um, in the 1980s, well, mostly 1990s, uh, I was part of a, a political consulting firm. So we helped develop direct mail for a lot of the people that eventually got into office. Um, and then I realized I really couldn't do both that and lobbying um, because if you're on a campaign that didn't work out, you had to deal with a person who did win uh, as a lobbyist. So, um, so I just swung over mainly to the lobbying profession, but I mean, a lot of these people I knew from back then when they were active in campaigns and politics before they ran for office and I would encourage them to run for office and help them run for office. Never been that brave, man. That's courage. That's courage. You know, that's, <laughs> Those young kids and those retirees and all those people that set out to 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 get into elected of office, man, they deserve a lot more more credit than they ever get. Um, you know, yeah, I only th- did it once, uh, and I think I got it out of my system. Um, two years ago, I ran for mayor of Bowie uh, because it's my hometown, and I I got out of my comfort zone and I enjoyed door knocking and meeting people all summer and fall, and I was not. Uh, fortunate or unfortunate, however you look at it, to, to one. But uh, it did give me a good appreciation for what people do who do put themselves out there and, and run for office. Well, 
a lot. I think a lot of people be interested. I know a lot. You know, a lot of people in this uh, audience would be interested to know. You know, the the mayor Bowie now is is looking at the is running for a comptroller, right? Right, right. I so I mean, you've had, you've had, was such a springboard. You know, I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe you did. Now, tell me uh, any any insights you can share about uh, about Tim. You know, working with him, working uh, on a campaign against him. Any any thoughts you want to share with the audience? Because I think there, everybody in my audience is probably like we all know who Brooke Learman is. We all know she's a fantastically hard worker with great ideas, and you know. But I think uh, I think a lot of a lot of other people in my world, which is more Baltimore centric, trying to understand who who this other candidate is, if you have any uh, insight to share. I mean, he was a very successful defense contractor. He did very well. Um, and he was quite a philanthropist in Prince George's County and the state. Um, and he was pretty courageous to be confined to a wheelchair and run a grassroots door knocking campaign in Bowie and he right. worked really hard at it. Um, so, I mean, this is a different kind of campaign he's running in now, but, um, um, but I mean, he, you know, it's, it's, you got to admire the guy who puts himself right. out there when. So it ain't over yet in the, in the cop trollers race, keep an eye out for that one. One thing I want to do, uh, uh, to poke around with you about, um, and I promise this would sound podcasty and I'm getting into interviewee Damien. So I apologize, <laughs> but some things are, are core to me and I'm going to try to utilize the insights of the others to get at it. You know, I come from Baltimore, that political juggernaut that you talked about Pete Rawlings and, you know, uh, Barbara Hoffman, like, you know, I, I worked for the city delegation and, and did whatever Barbara Hoffman told me to do. And, you know, Pete Rawlings sent me to work at the uh, draft in Fume campaign with Kim Washington in, in 1999 before uh, before this maverick uh, city councilman Martin O'Malley arrived on the scene. Um, and so I'm very I was I was sort of built in that protect Baltimore, that fortress Baltimore mentality. And the older I get and the more energy flows into the DMV and specifically the district of Columbia and the Washington region. You know, I wonder if we should have been building more bridges than fortresses over the last 25 years. And the only reason that comes to mind is because I see people like, you know, Kevin Plank and Mark Weller redeveloping Port Covington in Baltimore. I see people like, you know, Ken Allman being a chief strategy officer between the Baltimore, uh, you know, University of Maryland College Park and then working with some of the, the campuses in the Baltimore area. And, you know, uh, it just seems to me that Baltimore could be so much better served with those bridges. And if my audience can bear with me a little bit, like, you know, you can tell my inadequacies in Maryland politics because the first time I, I got to meet Len Lucci was we were running around the country saying, please save our Baltimore son. And, you know, literally this pearl of a human being from the Washington area arrives on the scene and, and tries to solve our problem and save our son. And you are right there next to him. Um, and, you know, this amazing Baltimore institution, uh, is looking at folks from the Washington area in our Maryland community to, to help save us. And I just, uh, not that we need saving, but we could use help and connectivity. And I just, 
I just wonder about that fortress Baltimore dynamic versus a bridge Baltimore dynamic. Uh, and your point of view of somebody who's been, you know, hasn't let that regional, you got your regional preference for, for sure, but that never stops you from being helpful in, in Baltimore. Like I said, you were Baltimore magazines, you know, power lawyer, et cetera. So I'd love to hear you uh, talk a little bit about that dynamic and, and, and your point of view in it. Yeah. I mean, there have been alliances. I mean, Wayne Curry and Kurt Schmoke were best friends. They shared a common mentor, Larry Gibson. And when, um, when the governor, when Governor Glenn Denning sought to settle the lawsuit that was filed um, against the Baltimore City schools by giving them a, a quarter of a billion dollar infusion, um, Wayne said to Kurt and to the governor and to the legislature, "Wait a second, we have um, students who are at risk and at needs have needs in Prince George's County and elsewhere too," and so. He made the case that it's great to give Baltimore money, but other jurisdictions need extra school money as well. And um, that then, and that, and and that fact, that session, the Speaker of the House stopped all legislative business until the governor appropriated that extra money for the other jurisdictions uh, because of that. And so that was a kind of cooperation that can happen. Uh, one literal bridge that is being discussed right now that is kind of curious about the reaction is this whole um, maglev idea. Um, I mean, it seems to me, I, you know, I lived in Baltimore for seven years during college and law school and, and go back a lot and appreciate it a lot and enjoy it. But it seems to me that the city really needs a massive shot in the arm to give it some spur a lot more commercial investment. And it seems to me that maglev could do that if people could live in Baltimore uh, much more cheaply than Washington and be in Washington for their job in 15 minutes. Um, but it's encountering all sorts of resistance. I'm not involved with it one way or the other, um, but it just seems like here is an exam here's a situation where a statewide solution can really help out Baltimore and revive it as an economic engine. And, and even people you know, in Baltimore are are resisting that and I don't understand because I mean it is a chance to have a real literal yeah you know I had uh, I had sort of put that issue on the shelf uh for as long as Ed DeGrange was on the was the chairman of capital budget which distributes you know some of the most real money in Maryland politics uh, till he got sort of off of uh his opposition to it I really didn't take take it seriously that he retired and so I, I, I think it is uh, it's something that needs some real thorough review and study. I, 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 like, I, I think you're exactly right. That's the kind of connectivity we need to be thinking about. I also think like, okay, what's going on with the, the Amtrak situation? And is it a compliment to that? Because my partner and I will leave from uh baltimore's penn station right and we'll go to union station in washington if we take the acela because we're a little overweight we can't jam ourselves into those bar cart seats we can stand up at the bar at the acela <laughs> and take it back um so uh, we're a little partial to that but i do think that there's something dynamic about the maglev experience it sort of redefines the connectivity that is really worth consideration i think 
think one of our guests, Jerry Evans, was uh, is on the case there. Um, it's a, it's it's something we should be thinking about. And, and you know, the other thing we do in Baltimore a lot is we look for like the big giant solution instead of maybe the day to day incremental little things we can do to be improving. We're always looking for that three run. Eddie Murray home run in the eighth inning, you know, to, to, to get us out of a jam. Um, so I appreciate, I, I think you're right on the mark about how, how can we utilize transit as a way to, to better connect the region. I think Maglev should be, should get a real deep look. So I, I thank you for raising that. What do you see in this? Um, you know, in the governor's race, we're seeing a lot. I think we got like, in one town in Tacoma Park in uh, in Montgomery County, right? That's uh, we've got three candidates coming out of there. We have a whole host of candidates coming out of the Washington region. Anything you can share there without getting yourself in any kind of uh, trouble? Any insight about uh, the governor's race and, and people's point of view in, in in Prince George's County or your own? Your own viewpoint. I mean, there are nine candidates running. Some are known, some are completely unknown, but the unknown ones seem to have access to some funds to become known. Um, I mean, my main fear is that I don't want the Democratic Party to come out of the primary severely divided and then have a difficult time in the, in the general election. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, the mother load of Democratic votes right now and turnout is, is in Prince George's County. So with Rashern Baker um, being the only candidate from Prince George's County, that gives him a built-in advantage. Um, Tom Perez, with his labor background, probably get a lot of labor union support, which in a Democratic primary uh, is pretty key. I helped boost Ben Jealous uh, four years ago. Um, so I don't know. I mean, uh, Doug Answers, known Peter Franco, has been in office for 36 years and running as the new kid in the block. Um, so, um, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's 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 really hard to say. And, and even some of these folks, like um, I was talking the other night with um, Mike Rosenbaum, who grew up in Montgomery County and lives in Baltimore now, and has done some a couple of startup businesses that are really fascinating in terms of how he tries to address. Um, labor shortages um he will with keystrokes right i mean he yeah right he will train he people can, yeah and then bring and then have them do projects for companies that have labor shortages i mean and he and he's done well by it and it helps people get valuable job skills at the same time and he tells you something right like he can find out just by taking an online test right that this is my understanding just by somebody taking one of his online tests he could figure out whether, whether or not they have a GED or a degree from Harvard, Harvard, he can figure out if they can become a, uh, com, uh, com, a software engineer, essentially. And, they, and he gets people that make, you know, no money to make in 70 and then $120,000 in their second or third year, like game changing stuff. And it really shows you, I think, like how much talent is out there that we don't feed off of because we play by the old book of like resumes and referrals and references. And that's all kind of the old timey way to get stuff done. It's something, you know, certainly I've relied on my whole life, but I come from a place of privilege. Other people don't have that. And so he's been able to, you know, use technology to get people, you know, elevated and mo upwardly mobile. It's really, 
this really is amazing. I, I thank you for pointing that out. You know, yeah. what do you think about? And I was on a board uh, with uh, John King, and, and and he's a brilliant, charismatic guy with a great story to tell, uh, too. Um, and so, I mean, dude. there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of talent. Um, and I don't know Wes Moore, but he went to Hopkins, so he's got to be good. So <laughs> he did. Uh, Len is a is a graduate of. Uh, the Johns Hopkins University and the University of Maryland School of Law. So, yeah, you might you have a Blue Jay in the race you might have to pull for. I, you know, I just said the word dude, and uh, I'm not shy about it because it, it is a bit of a bummer that we don't have any female candidates in this race. Uh, I, I remember talking to Brooke Learman about it. Uh, uh, she, she had her path set. You know, I just – I think that uh, – I think – we need to do a lot of listening if we're not going to have a woman in this field, especially if we're going to go up against one in the general, which looks like that is a, is a possibility, but you know, like you're getting at with these bios of each of these candidates, I couldn't be more, and you know, I'm a, an incessant whiner. I, I couldn't be more proud of this field, you know, people who have been my, you know, nemesis or arch enemy in, in past races or issues, I say, you know, they're perfectly qualified and, uh, and experienced to do a great job as governor, you know, and then some of these names that are, that I'm not familiar with, or that I've just become familiar with, like people like John King and, uh, and others, you know, that they're adding so much to the race and they're adding so many different dimensions. I just couldn't be prouder as a, you know, like you, a Maryland democratic party trustee to see this field develop. Uh, I'm I'm hoping for I'm hoping for a, 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 a um, you know some more inclusion about women's issues throughout that because I think we need to I think we need to have a deep handle on that before we get into this general. Uh, what are you looking at in uh, in regards to the Democratic chances here? You know we have a tough time in this state pulling it together. Uh, your people down there in Prince George's County, uh, Paris Glendening, and then and then Baltimore's Martin O'Malley, really the the only two people to figure it out in the last, you know, 30, 35 years. Love to love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think it's important to run a statewide strategy because even though the bulk of the Democratic votes are in the Baltimore-Washington corridor, if you really crater in the rest of the state, you're not going to have a shot. So um, you're not going to win a lot of those counties on the shore in Western Maryland or Southern Maryland, but you got to make the effort because, uh, because if you really get wiped out there, you can't make it up um, with the, um, with the suburban vote. But I mean, look at, look at um, Eastern shore this last time that uh, the Democrats won Kent County and Talbot County. Tulpa County being one of the wealthiest counties in the state. Um, and it went uh, democratic. So, I mean, it could be done. Yeah. You can see those urban dynamics sort of shaping out Frederick and Talbot sort of changing the playing field a little bit. How about on the Republican side? I, I don't know much about uh, secretary Co- Kelly Shoals other than she, um, I, I did see her get around the state quite a bit as the, the head of economic development. Um, I was a, a great admirer of her predecessor, uh, Mike Gill, um, who was on the other side of the fence from us, but, uh, always willing to, to advance Maryland interest. So I just don't know much about her. 
Um, and I don't see – if I were a Republican close to Kelly Scholes, I think I would want to see more consolidation amongst the Republican leadership around her. And I just – I haven't seen that yet. It, I don't know if it's, it's taken for granted or most likely I'm just clueless on that side of the fence. Don't know. But, you know, I, I, I don't know what you're seeing. Yeah, well, I mean, for, for first of all, I wouldn't – count out um, Mike Steele yet. Um, well, talk to me about this guy because, I, you know, I don't know anything about Talk to me about this guy. Yeah, Mike and I were buddies at Hopkins. He was the head of the campus Republicans. I was the head of the campus Democrats. Um, and he's a brilliant guy. Um, and he you know, has had a really good um, view of the, the uh, de-evolution of the Republican Party the last four years. Um, and so, I mean, he is a very that uh, can be a, have a, be a very compelling candidate if he chooses to do that. And I think he's going to make a decision one way or the other, um, you know, by this fall. Um, so, I mean, he's a compelling candidate. Of course, he might have a hard time in a right wing Republican primary um, pulling it off because of, because of the way the Republican Party's gone. And I saw that Dan Cox has opened up a gubernatorial committee lives he's from frederick county and right um, and he would appeal to the to the trumpers who are the now the base of the republican party um even in maryland so um interesting right yeah it's a, it's uh it's a changing landscape i mean trump is in maryland you know uh democrats like us you know none of us could uh could stomach much of uh, 45 and then he made it doubly difficult because his own behavior gave Larry Hogan, who really didn't have any record for Democrats uh, or even independents. I mean, he just doesn't have much of a record of uh, achievement on anything because, you know, he's constricted by uh, either his own uh, talents to reach across the aisle or just it, it never quite works out for him. You know, I'm, now I'm going on a whole uh, Larry, now I'm going to a whole Larry Hogan achievement uh, diatribe, which really doesn't matter. But, you know, Trump gave Larry Hogan the opportunity to look like a completely reasonable human being to independents and Democrats. And so it's, it's that it's that timeless Barney Frank quote, right? Like compared to what? Davey, you're not a big you're not a big Larry Hogan fan, but compared to Donald Trump, maybe maybe your voice doesn't matter when that's the comparison, you know. So that's been a that's been a challenge to watch, and I think the governor has handled that from a communication standpoint as masterfully as possible. We'll see if he has coattails. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, he has not had coattails in Maryland the past four years. Um, you know, when he had their drive for five state Senate seats and they picked up one, um, he's a very prolific fundraiser, but he, that did not extend to that largesse did not extend to those Republican candidates, nor has it extended to the Maryland Republican party. Um, you so, saw him, you saw him creeping up in Prince George's County your whole career though, right? Cause he was kind of a, a son of a Congressman and County executive and, so, did you see him sort of popping? You know, and he was in the Ehrlich administration. He was the appointment secretary. You know, put the dancer at the port and uh, the ice dancer at the port, and you know, uh, all those things we forget about. You know, I, 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 what was what was what was his sort of emergence like to watch for somebody who has so much experience in Prince George's County? 
I mean, it's been fascinating. I mean, he's, you know, he's a very nice guy. Um, you know, I, I first met him when he worked for his father, when his father was county executive and, and I was practicing law in Upper Marlboro. Um, and then he ran for Congress in 81 and lost in the primary to Audrey Scotland had the special election to fill Gladys Spellman's seat. Then he ran for Congress in 92 when they redid uh, Steny Hoyer's district so that all of a sudden Steny had a run in Southern Maryland and um, uh, and Larry gave him a run for his money in, in 1992 even though the Democrats swept the state. So I mean he's you know he's not he's not he's not new to this stuff but um uh, and then he was certainly a you know, big he was you know Bob Ehrlich's enforcer in many ways um but, but he's a I mean he's an awfully nice guy he's in the, like you said he's a brilliant messenger he just has two little figures one on each shoulder one from the national party uh in dc saying kick those democrats ass and then he has his maryland people say let's work with the democrats and reach against the across the aisle so you see him shift back and forth um and, and not, sometimes you're not sure which which governor you're going to get but um, i do think he learned a lot from that being appointment secretary of Ehrlich. not only obviously did he further develop his sort of base of Republican leadership all across the state. But I think he learned from Bob Ehrlich, like, if you want to try to develop a K Street strategy on state circle, like, it ain't gonna work, you know, and, and it just creates all kinds of animosity. And it could creates um, animosity with people that have resources in the Maryland political ecosystem. I feel like he was the appointment secretary you know, he was being called into all the same hearings I was uh, with Jerby Finney and Brian Frosch on one of those special investigations. And I just I can imagine Larry looking at all that stuff and just saying, you know, I, there's a way to do all this a lot differently than uh, sort of the Bob Ehrlich Washington way. And, man, I think he came in there and proved it, you know, not just, a, you know, punks like me, but he proved it to his own party that. You know, if you, if you kind of go above uh, the immediate nasty politicalness and you try to lift yourself a little bit above that, he had some help with some health issues to get him into that space a little quicker. But, you know, I think that really helped him out, certainly helped him out with Mike Miller. And, you know, he has all these uh, people that have been advisors to Democrats uh, through the years advising him now. You know, it's a, it's a, it's um, an interesting dynamic. Uh, Kiefer Mitchell is a very uh, experienced, wise person. Has been right. Asked that well, to governor. And I supported for mayor of Baltimore. Right. Let me tell a great you, funny, yeah. So I was supporting Kiefer in one of my uh, boastful moments in my younger days. I was running around City Hall, and I was like, uh, you know, Kiefer's going to win. He's going to knock off Sheila Dixon. You know, all these things that never happened. And Stanley Fine, who you may remember, a uh, uh, great uh, real estate lawyer in Baltimore, he looks at me and he says, Damien, we're just touts. Our job is to tout the people that are in office because we are in public affairs and we're in law and our job is to deal with those people. We're not dealing with the candidates. We're not dealing with the wannabes. We're dealing with the people that are making decisions and our jobs to you know, sort of when they're doing the right thing, tout them. So I was cutting all across that. But the more I look back on my career, uh, you know, the more I think, man, you know, Stanley's right in a sense. You know, we like, we like to fancy ourselves strategists and tacticians and all this. 
but there's a big part of the game that's being a tout. And what I committed myself to doing is like uh, on social media is just try, trying to be a positive voice for people that are doing positive things because I've fallen down in my past and we're all trying to get better. There's people already doing that great stuff out there. People like Len Lucci, you know, that can always use an extra hand to build a coalition to do good. And so, I, you know, I just, the, you brought up Kiefer and uh, Stanley came to mind and uh, all your good work. It's, you know, it's all connected. Um, I just can't thank you enough for being an open presence in, uh, in an environment where it's so easy to be quieter and darker and uh more confidential i just uh i think you i think you sort of had i think you sort of had some of these uh values that Kiefer and stan and stanley and all the others are taught me that i'm finally catching up to <laughs> i just enjoy it so i'm gonna keep doing it as long as i enjoy it and if i stop enjoying it um i won't do it but um all right well i'm gonna I, try I to stop some... to join at this past session when we we're all in our lockdown you know and were you yeah yeah talk to me we about had that. a lobby by text i mean i was getting calluses on my thumbs i mean it was just not fun at all not having the after work stuff at the bars or, and or talk talking to people in, a, in, in the hallway i mean just all the fun was taken out of it that's true that's so true man and that's why a lot of us are in this game right it's for this kind of human connectivity i think you know it, it, sure. it, that has sort of a higher purpose to it right yeah i mean i you know I, there are tons of great folks that work in annapolis so i enjoy working with uh, even my work on opposite sides i enjoy it i mean with that. last question for you you know you're an expert in this field uh, um, and that is media you know you are uh you're an advisor and board member on Maryland Matters, which I think anybody that loves Maryland politics has to absolutely treasure. I think I made a fundraising commitment a couple months ago and dedicated to you, dedicated to you. And I haven't sent the check yet in typical Dave, you know, Darty fashion. So we'll get on that after this podcast. But Maryland Matters, uh, you're also an advisor to uh, to uh, the great champion of local news in Baltimore, Stuart Bainham. Um, you know, uh, you and Ted Venatoulis seem to be the, the closest people to Stuart. I'd love to just hear your point of view about the Maryland media ecosystem and, and sort of any bright spots or, or um, longings you have uh, for that community. Sure. I mean, I remember when I first started working in Annapolis, there was a huge, robust press corps. Um, and in every committee hearing would have three or four reporters. And now it's, 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 it's so much less. And so, you know, Josh and Maryland Matters and now Daniel Gaines have done a good job at filling that void in Annapolis. They now have more reporters on the ground than the Post and the Sun put together. But, but more is needed than that because- Is that right? Local, Say that one more it, time. Uh, Josh, I mean, Maryland Matters has more reporters on the ground in the State House than the Washington Post and the Baltimore Sun put together on a shoestring budget, which is pretty amazing. So, pretty amazing. And they have, you know, top notch reporters. Um, and so um, but but local news is is dying. Right. I mean, they had the, the uh, commemoration of the new memorial the cap the, for the Annapolis Capitol on Monday. And the Annapolis capital is dying. The reporters are taking the buyouts that you can't blame them for doing. Um, 
and the Baltimore Sun owns local papers all over the state and they're all uh, dying. But yet people need local news. They need local news to keep local officials honest, right? I mean, if, if you don't have That's local right. media- Taxes go up, right? Taxes go up, crime yeah. goes um, you, you need it. And so, you know, Jeff Bezos has done a great job of rebuilding the Post as a national publication, but not as much on the local level. Um, well, I think what you guys are going to do, uh, whatever it is you guys are doing, whether it's in Baltimore with Stewart or Maryland Matters, I mean, you're on the front lines of how, you know, local and state news gets delivered. I think a lot of people are looking to you guys and gals to see what's you know, what's possible. Uh, it, what do you think are some of the biggest hurdles? Like is Maryland matters. I mean, they, it's, it's gotta be kind of a hand to mouth uh, operation. You know, they're doing uh, relying on folks in the community for fundraising and folks in, you know, they, they don't have like a bunch of big businesses backing them, et cetera. So it's, it's amazing. They're able to do that. Um, what do you see as the long-term future of something like Maryland Matters? It seems like you've got Josh back in the field, you know, reporting and commenting, which is all anybody really wants, right? And then, right. And then he's, he's backed up by uh, more reporters. Just Do you see more of that kind of growth, or do you see them getting into uh, even more local reporting, like maybe in Prince George's and Montgomery, or is it it's going to stay uh, a state? I, I think Maryland Matters would like to get into local reporting, but it, it takes resources. Um, and so, you know, the kind of thing that Stuart wants to put a platform that he wants to put up there, a multimedia local news platform, uh, you know, maybe the, the answer. Now, how do you make something like that self-sustaining? There is no real example anywhere in the United States yet of how that works. And, and it really hasn't been tried uh, on a multi-media local way. I mean, there are nonprofits that run large papers or their statewide papers, but in terms of getting into the nitty gritty of local news, I mean, one behavior change is gonna re requires folks are gonna have to break down and, and pay for their content on their phone, which right now they're not used to doing. Maryland Matters is free. A lot of the online content is Free, but if you really want to drill down there, I think it's going to take some kind of subscribership, and um, that's going to take a change in thinking. I mean, myself, I would miss. I'm going to miss having the newspaper in my hand where I get the ink in my fingers in the morning, and where I look at the comics and part of the paper. But but you know, it's it's the evolution of what the, the news business. Yeah, you know that that the whole culture of journalism is going through an interesting change, and all the things you know. I mean all the reasons that we love the paper, we talk about it like the ink in our hands, but really, you know, it's a curated information experience where somebody else is telling us or a group of people is telling us like, Hey, you should pay attention to this. We're going to put it right up here in front of your eyeballs. And then we're going to tell you some other stuff it might be a few pages back. You know, there's a whole um, ethos to that or whole work ethic to that approach that we're so dependent on. It's shifting online. One of the things that I find so uh, magical about uh, the opportunities that might come in Baltimore and, 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 with, and with Maryland Matters is 
we grew up with the newspapers and there was the TV and they, and, and now there's the internet. They all three had different sets of characters, you know, kind of like the radio days had their voices. And then the TV people came on and the radio people were like, that's just TV. We're the real stars. You can see that dynamic happening here. Like Joe Scarborough is like, you know, commenting on, you know, or giving short shrift to some, you know, blogger who might have a bigger following than him. And so what's cool about Maryland Matters, what you're doing there, and uh, what's cool about hearing Stuart Bainham and Ted Venatoulis talk about uh, local news is in Baltimore is, you know, it sounds like they want to put news in your headphone. They want to put news in your, on your device. They want to put news on your laptop. They want to put news in your community event. Like they realize that this is a multi-dimensional dimensional experience. And there's a chance to kind of come into that space and say, we're going to provide news across all of those platforms and cut through that you know, hierarchy of the old news system that just doesn't exist in this new media estuary. So, man, I can't thank you enough for, you know, pushing forward on that. It's exciting. That's very exciting. And, and so necessary. <laughs> so necessary. Uh, Len, I'm going to let you get back to the practice of law. You've had, uh, you've, been kind, you've been kind enough to uh, indulge me here and uh, anything we need to be telling people last uh yeah, I know you're like the opposite of me. If I'm a shameless plug artist, then you are like a, a quiet behind the scenes person. But anything uh, you want the folks to know on the way out the, uh, the pod here? Just that the state has a big election next year at every level of office and get involved. Now's the time. Get involved. That's the word. Thank yeah. you, Len Lucci. You're a great pleasure. I appreciate all your work. Thank you. Take care, brother. Bye.